Today's guest is BBC trained director of photography and has been filming documentaries around the globe for 30 years. Along the way, he shot a number of BAFTA nominated series and won a Best Sigma Photography Award. His remarkable career has included amazing stories on such diverse subjects, such as the Angolian War, Nelson Mandela campaigning for black farmers' rights in South Africa, and the meeting of the last British and German veterans of First World War. He's a master of capturing people's stories for the world, and his passion is so strong and his storytelling so vivid that when we were speaking, I actually felt like I was sitting in the Chinook next to him, about to insert into Iraq or in the Jeep, bumping down a mined road in Africa. I hope you enjoyed his passion and energy as much as I did. I loved chatting with him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Humphreys. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Fiona. It's lovely to be here. So you are an award-winning cameraman, but you've gone around the world and done these amazing, filmed in these amazing places. How did you sort of end up starting your career behind the camera? How did it all start? Yeah, 40 it years ago. Did. It did. <laughs> yeah, a few years ago now. Yeah, and it all started um, when I was sort of making amateur movies. Uh, my mum and dad bought me a small Super 8mm camera all when I was 12, 13, when I was very young. And it all sort of started from there. Um, I was fascinated by just the well, Actually, to be honest with you, I was fascinated initially. We, we used to f- shoot on film, uh, Kodak film. Uh, and I was yeah. just fascinated by the fact I could hold the film up to the light um, and you could see the images on there that you'd captured and, and, and you could smell it. It was a, a chemical process that it had gone through to be developed and to be processed. And you could smell the film. You could hold the film and it totally captivated me. And of course, at the same time, I was able to show friends and family maybe once a year films that I'd shot. And, and, and there was a little trigger there that people were actually uh, getting some form of entertainment out, out of what I was doing. Maybe they were just laughing politely. I'm not sure. So how did that passion move from uh, doing the home cameras to saying, I want to I want to have a career from this? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it was a big step. I, I was probably 16, 17, and I made a, a little wildlife film, again, on that Super 8mm camera. Uh, I made a little uh, wildlife film. I put a, a camera into the back of a bird box, uh, and I wow. followed these birds nesting and hatching. Um, and we took that film to the BBC Natural History Unit in Bristol, which is close to where I live. Uh, I say we because it was my mother and I, and I was probably 16, 17 at the time. And a lovely guy there, a gentleman called Peter Bale, who used to be a series producer. He's sadly no longer with us, but he watched the film and he advised us there and then um, or advised me to go off and get some professional film training with the bigger, uh, more sort of um, broadcast like cameras at a film school. And I did that. And literally, and this was the era, I mean, this is 40 years ago now, um, Peter phoned me up at the end of my year course and said, Jeremy, you still there? Um, and uh, I've got a job um, in the BBC Natural History Unit Library. Are you interested? And that's really where it all started. 
Wow. So you had you sort of had a job ready to go right out of film school. I was actually phoned up. It was a year-long course, and I was phoned up. Um, I don't recall exactly when, but a couple of months before the course ended, and Peter said, um, as, as I say, we've got a job in the BBC Natural History Unit Library. Uh, would you be interested? And I got the job, and, and just to, to indicate what it, what, it, what it was and what it involved, um, it had nothing to do with filming at all. Um, I actually worked. Oh in the film vaults, the actual vaults where all the film was stored. And this was mile after mile after mile of film that had been shot all over the world, natural history films of animals, some of which were potentially extinct because this, this work had never been done before. And it was archiving, basically, the footage. So storing those clips from maybe 30, 40 years ago that had never been transmitted in the film. They're what we call trims and storing those away so they could be sold on for future use. And it was my job, <laughs> it was my job to physically stick all the film together with a little bit of glue. And so I was working in this tiny little room, butting the two bits of film together, sticking them together with a little bit of glue, sealing them with what's called a heat cement splicer. And because a steam went up, a bit of waft of glue went up, you rolled the film a little <laughs> bit further, and then you did the next joint. That's how it started. Fantastic. So after you glued them all together, I'm assuming that you're having to watch this really, um, well, really never before seen footage when you were archiving them. Did that sort of get you into doing more nature um, footage? Is it cinema photography? What's the correct word for it? Yeah, well, cinematography is correct. I mean, I mean, initially I was just there and I worked with a colleague. I mean, it was um, uh, my colleague, Alan, the editor, who was actually doing the actual deciding what shots. But, yes, you're absolutely right. These were shots we then put in a big roll of film um, and some of them had not been seen for a long, long time. Um, some of mm. them were more common. But, anyway, that, that would commercially go on and be sold to another client. Um but my journey was one where I was I was there for uh, probably only six months, and I then transferred across to the main film unit, which was also in BBC Bristol, and this was hallowed turf because this was um, crews names of who you know, the cameramen I had seen um, on on the television on the big Attenborough series who suddenly were there standing next to me getting ready to go to their next trip to Kenya whatever it was and I was a mere lowly trainee assistant very shy very introverted um, not that confident at all um, and all of a sudden I was mixing and working with these guys and very soon I think my first trip actually was to Kenya um, and I ended up as an assistant um, working uh, on the Masai Mara. And I think we stayed in, stayed in the famous Treetops Hotel in Masai Mara. And I'm only 18, 19, no, a bit older than that. I'm 20, 21 at this stage, so very, very young. Um, but even at that stage, I wasn't filming. I was merely loading the film. So I was in charge of loading the film, uh, making sure the camera cases were, were looked after, all that sort of stuff. But even at that very early stage, I had a fascination. And it probably harked back to what I was doing with that Super 8mm camera to actually get behind the camera um, and actually sort of, you know, be the cameraman. That, that was the ambition. So after that trip from Kenya, how long did it take you to sort of become that principal cameraman? Yeah, no, it's very interesting, actually, because I was very lucky because we worked in uh, BBC Bristol and there was this sort of link between the Natural History Unit and also the film unit where I was. 
Um, we had a series called Nature, which is a big environmental series, um, which basically filmed globally. Um, and I was very lucky. My, my, my first mentor, as I say, was, was Mr. Peter Bale. Uh, the second was a gentleman called Peter Salmon, who's still very much with us and running a, a highly successful independent company in London. Uh, but he was at the BBC then, and he gave me my first filming job. Yeah, I was an assistant, but it was then fairly standard at the BBC that even if you're an assistant, you went out and, and, and shot. Um, and I think one of the first trips I did, I, I came down to your neck of the woods. We came down to the Nullarbor Plain, um, mm -hmm. just in sort of, forgive the phrase, Western Central Australia. Um, and we were filming Aboriginal women, Aboriginal women that have been affected by uh, British nuclear testing in the 1950s. Mm. Um, and they still had a range of birth defects, still had a range of um, issues in terms of their own health. Um, and at that time, we're talking about late 80s, nothing had really been done uh, for them um, in terms of legal representation. And um, we were doing a film about that. Um, and that and the subsequent films that Peter allowed me to or, or asked me to film on nature, I ended up doing the Coptic Christians and doing a film about them in Cairo. I was to go to South Africa and do some film about black farmers' rights got me very much into the passion to working with people in front of my camera. In other words, sort of anthropological, social, mm -hmm. um, interested in just their lives, just to go into their lives for a few days or maybe a few weeks, point my camera at them and realistically and faithfully record what's going on there in their own lives. And, and that fascination has never left me. When you're doing that work, are you are you just and I don't want to oversimplify this because obviously what you do is and your skill level is amazing, but are you literally just are you doing the whole story and producing it and sort of creating this storyline of what you want to shoot, or are you just there with a the camera and somebody else is telling you that other aspect? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. No, it's, it's a good point to make. Um, I work with a big production team. So in Australia, in Egypt, in South Africa, there would be a team like a producer, a director, uh, and normally a researcher or an assistant producer, some such, that have gone before me. They've done these, they found out the story. You'll appreciate in those three examples I've given, there's key stories that are also slightly political so lots of permissions mm. have to be got and the bbc of course has to give both sides to the coin so you need people um who are you know the aboriginal women for example but also people sort of standing up and saying well this is why they've, that's happened so from we did interviews with the british government back here as well so there's a big team working um but your point is a is a good one because yes i am um there with the camera um i am working under direction in terms of, you know, that I, I'm often said, you know, point the camera over there, point the camera there. But more often than not, the sort of films I do where access can be very, very limited, it is often mm. me just at the cold face, as it were, uh, in the room um, covering a scene where I'm directing myself and maybe something we'll come on to in a minute, but just in terms of how I do that. Um, but often it is I'm fairly autonomous in terms of me um, just reacting to a situation as it happens. Did you ever want to get from behind the camera to in front of it or always happy to sort of be that silent witness and tell the story through the lens? 
I've always been very happy to 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 just be that sort of recorder of the scene. Um, I I I love that process of interacting with humans in terms of being able to have a compassion, being able to have a an understanding, to be able to have a feeling. I mean, I'm two, doing two different things. I'm technically recording the scene, getting the shot in focus and getting exposure right. But at the same time, I'm also having to dip into what these people are thinking and feeling. And, and it's a very compassion-led uh, occupation. Mm. Um, I do say to those I train, um, you know, um, film how you feel as much as film what you see. Um, so there's that part of it. So I've always been very comfortable behind the camera recording that, uh, being in those situations, recording those scenes. Um, at the same time, from my training point of view, I do a fair bit of stuff in front of camera now, but I've never wanted to present as such. I can't remember my lines. That's half the problem. I'd, I'd forget my script half the time. <laughs> so how did you go from doing Australia and South Africa um, and there was another one in there. I've, I've forgotten where, where else it was. Um, Egypt, Cairo. To going to Egypt, Cairo, thank you. Um, to going to cover the first Gulf War. Because was that your first sort of overseas um, sort of getting out of that? I suppose it was still political, but, you know, the storytelling mm. and moving mm. to a more dynamic mm. sort of mm. environment. Unpredictable. Yeah. yeah, certainly 1991 came along. Bizarrely, it was for the same program. It was for the Nature series. Um, and it was partly environmental because all the fires were being set up. That's why we were there covering the mm -hmm. environmental disaster. Saddam Hussein had lit all the oil, oil uh, wells. And, and it was just it's extraordinary. I, I remember just driving over this desert for mile after mile after mile. And even though the war was going on, I'll come back to that in a second, but it just looked like we were just driving across a desert. But then all of a sudden, it looked like somebody had gone along with a black pen along the horizon. And this black pen, or this smoke as it turned out to be, got wider and broader. And all of a sudden, we realised the sky, it was like some sort of scene from hell where the sky went from a pure blue to a, a pitch black and we had our, our headlights on that and that was the fires being lit but no the the the, the reason um, we were there was because of the fires but but in terms of how we got there that was probably yeah the first sort of news thing that i'd covered where it'd been totally unpredictable and dangerous um and the war was the battles were going on just ahead of us in terms of the repatriation of kuwait city but we drove i remember very early one morning from um, Saudi Arabia, where we've been based across the border, and uh, the British or the Americans have just knocked the border, the border fence flat. And of course, normally we go through passports and security, all that I got. We literally just drove through the fence. I can remember it clearly, clearly uh, today as it was then. And then we just kept going along the, across the desert. There was litter, various um, detritus from um, war in terms of um, various sort of ruined uh, buildings and vehicles. Um, but then to get us into further, uh, into sort of uh, uh, the, 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 the zone, as it were, we actually flew with the RAF and the RAF, we were sort of um, uh, embedded with them. And the RAF flew us with one of their RAF Chinooks further in. And that's when we saw a lot of other stuff. We saw the famous um, convoy of Iraqi vehicles that had been bombed only hours before 
the famous photograph that George Bush had, had, had um, sort of, um, um, I'm not sure he permitted it, but certainly it had been uh, happened by, uh, you know, in terms of American bombing. Um, and um, we saw various sort of um, sort of scenes of soldiers sort of um, hanging out of trenches and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, that was the first unpredictable thing. And you've got to be really, in terms of your wits, just being there because was everything being mined, so you couldn't stand off the roads. Um, and being a desert, you can see for miles, but of course people can see you for miles in return. So there's all that side. But we were with the RAF, as I say. Um, we had some hydraulic failure on the chin-up where we had to come down very, very quickly. And we were just there. I have a photo of this helicopter just for miles, nothing apart from us. And you think, right, OK, how are we going to get out of this? Um, and you you, you do realise your hands are, you know, your, your life and your hands are with others. Um, you have no control and you just sort of go with it but we we were we were um safely taken in we were safely taken out um but yeah it's 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 an amazing experience what i missed on that if i'm honest uh, i missed uh, meeting the people and, and that was to come later on other films um but it was it was a, an amazing thing to do and extraordinary sights but i missed sort of getting to know the people that had been affected by all this and, and that was to come on sort of subsequent shoots in, in, in other places yeah if you had been flown in and out by the RAF and previously you're, I'm assuming, spending weeks at your other other locations filming, how long were you in that situation in Iraq where where you're getting flown in by the RAF? Were you sort of flown in and then we stayed for, a, for of- a while or...? Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. We were there um, for a, a couple of days, and we, we did have a, a base in Saudi Arabia where we were eventually to come back to. Um, in terms of how many days we were actually there, I don't actually recall off the top of my head, and obviously there wasn't anywhere to stay. Um, I think we may have stayed in an RAF base or somewhere, um, but in terms of going in there, um, we were certainly going in and out of there for a couple of days. We may even have been coming back to Saudi. I don't recall, to be honest, um, because it, it's just you know, 24-7. Uh, and even when you, mm. you know, at night and you're, you're charging up your camera batteries, you can hear um, explosions and gunfire and all that sort of stuff, yeah. So uh, you said that you're embedded with the RAF, so they're doing security for you while you're over there mm. for the length of time? Mm. They yeah, they okay. did the security, and also we done some sort of hazard assessment uh, before we went as well, um, just to make sure you know we knew how to get out of a helicopter if it ditched and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yes, um, that again is where there's a team going ahead of me in terms of a producer and and, and an assistant producer, sort of um, making sure everything's sorted. But there would have been some agreement between the BBC and the RAF that you could only film certain things and only show certain things, and and you have to remember there's a war going on as well. So, you know, they, mm. they are doing their job. Um, but we saw some extraordinary stuff. I mean, the, the, the Chinook, for, for um, most of your listeners, that they, they probably know, but it's a, a massive two-bladed helicopter. Um, and they were using it in Kuwait. They were, they, were, they were a little bit old, a bit rickety, but they were using them so they could just transport troops and um, Land Rovers and stuff. And we flew everywhere with what they call the back ramp down. So the actual back ramp was continually open. So you have this huge void at the back where, you know, you're, you're, you're 
harnessed in, but you can actually walk right to the back and look out. And I've got some wonderful still photographs, just these silhouettes of these guys there, uh, these RAF winchmen um, sitting on the, the back of the ramp. And as I say, we also had this emergency landing where there was a hydraulic leak. And I remember the oil, um, um, uh, the, the hot oil, the smell of the hot oil. Um, there was a leak somewhere and we had to land pretty quickly. Um, but it was an extraordinary um, event to cover because not only would you see this black smudge of smoke coming towards you, but before you actually saw the flames, you can actually feel the ground vibrating because such was the pressure, this oil, which became flames, was coming out of the ground. It was like a, a rocket, inverted rocket. Uh, and the whole ground shook. And as you got closer, the heat was extraordinary. So it was apocalyptic um, um, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, what it looked like. And, and you remember those sites. But as I say, again, I just missed. We never really met any locals. There are no locals there. Um, so it was very much seen from a, um, a, a military MOD point of view. Very disconcerting, though, when the ground's vibrating. I mean, you would have, I mean, obviously it wasn't there, but I would have thought that there would have been some sort of a sense of, is this fire coming out of the pipes from the oil? Is it going to just suddenly combust everything else and terrifying? Totally, yeah. I mean, I mean, in terms of that, the, the, the biggest concern was not standing on a mine. So we always stood on the roads and stuff like that. Um, so you, you didn't wander mm. off. Um, and in terms of the actual fires, you, you knew they were fairly confined to this extraordinary well, because that's where the, the oil was obviously going to come from. But um, yeah, I mean, there was nothing to say, because you have a whole row of them, you have a small cluster of them together, nothing to say the whole lot couldn't have gone. Um, and it's an interesting point because as I look back and think of the things I have done with my camera, there's always an element of, of risk involved. Um, and I think it's fair to say I get a little bit of confidence. I get a little bit of, I mean, I don't do stupid things, but I feel more um, comfortable um, when I have a camera on my shoulder when I'm in these situations than when I'm not. Now, that makes no sense at all because it's not going to protect me. But even, you know, sitting on the back of that Chinook helicopter, that I was going to be okay, that, 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 you know, nothing bad was going to happen. It just, it's just a, I guess it's like a, you know, some form of comfort blanket. I just felt more, um, sort of, as I say, confident when I have that camera with me than, than when I don't. And then mm. going back, I mean, some of my great heroes are war photographers. Um, they're your Robert Cappers and your Don McCullens and stuff. So after that assignment, did you go straight into Kuwait? Uh, we were we 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 were in Kuwait, so we we made ourselves. We did get to Kuwait City, yeah, briefly, um, and um, we were had a press pass as well. So in terms of the actual um, sort of access, a combination of having a press pass and being with the the RAF as well got us into these places. Um, and I remember seeing all the news reporters there as well. Um, as I say, we didn't stay there that long. I think we then turned around and came back out. Um, where, again, where we stayed, I, I don't recall, um, but we must have been in there more than a, um, you know, a couple of days. Um, but yeah, so we, we got into, we, we did see Kuwait City um, and then um, we backtracked. Um, but I remember when we came out being absolutely 
black in charcoal in in well, in charcoal but in burnt oil so all the clothes were ruined mm. all my camera bags were ruined the camera was covered in a thick film of oily greasy um cinders just from the burning of this stuff clothes were ruined it was in your hair we were our faces were black as well um it was an extraordinary thing and, and i don't think um in terms of war anything like that has ever been done and that sort of secondary stuff has ever been done before in terms of um you know it's just like i guess in vietnam or years before where the in terms of environmental the americans have basically napalmed everything um and Saddam hussein was trying to do the same he's trying to destroy everything um but at the same time ruin everything um, economically so when you're over there actively filming so not the scout the pre-scout team how many of you are there is it is it the presenter yourself and a sound person is it three of you or is it more there was more um so there was myself um a sound recordist um a producer director uh an assistant producer stroke fixer who was basically liaising with the RAF all the time trying to get us in and out uh and also a presenter as well um who was basically standing up in front of the camera um and actually talking to the camera and giving us the um giving us the the, the report um so and i think we probably yes we did we had the saudi driver and a saudi fixer as well so it's a big team um mm. and of course all this costs money um and of course all this um has um you know the the, the knock-on effect of and where people stay, how you feed and drink them, because there's no there's no infrastructure there. Um, so we're reliant on the RAF for food, on 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 them for water, so on and so forth. And you've got to look after yourselves at the same time. Um, so yeah, no, it was. And going back to your original question in terms of of, of moving across, that was the first sort of film I'd done where it was utterly um, unpredictable. Um, and where the, where we were just literally um, at the whim of whatever came towards us, yeah. So after that assignment, what was the next step? Where did you go from there? Well, in terms of that, I mean, I, I left the BBC in sort of 92, so probably just after the, the Gulf War, which was uh, 1991. Um, and then I went freelance. And the great beauty of going freelance is you then uh, work on a whole variety of stuff. So... Um, within the sort of six, seven years after leaving the BBC, um, I was to go off and do a film uh, at Heathrow Airport called Airport, all mm -hmm. about behind the scenes mm -hmm. at Heathrow Airport. Yes, I've um, watched it. And sort of, there you go. <laughs> a docker soap, one of the first BBC docker soaps. So literally just going round following people. Uh, and then that was swiftly followed uh, by um, Paddington Green um uh district in west london so that was just about people that live there so i was really happy with airport i was really happy with paddington greens so i got back into working with people paddington green was that was was everything from uh, transvestites to uh, a family that ran a, a motor scooter shop through to um a, a slightly jack the lad guy making sort of slightly shady um sort of um, deals um through to a whole range of people to um, a, a casting school a whole range so anything and anyone that lived in the west of london um and that was about four years of my life it was two years on each um and that was me and a recordist and again a director uh, and often a researcher 
just working very, very long days. So getting under the skin of these people, uh, getting into, you know, what makes them work? How does their brain function in terms of being in all these different situations? What's life like for them? What are the high points? What are the low points? And it was a great four years, but something I'm glad when I did relatively young because stamina wise, it's physically exhausting because you're running around with a camera mm. all the time um, and just sort of, you know, keeping yourself going. But great, great fun. And, and it's back again to those human stories um and that all ended by uh, again going back to africa um to do something completely different um which was um, back to war i'm afraid and the civil war in um, angola when you're um going into environments and you're saying that you're sort of trying to get under the skin and tell these stories of people how do you make people or is there a trick that you have to make people feel more comfortable in front of a camera that have never been in front of a camera? Absolutely. Just get to know them beforehand. I talk yeah. to everyone, um, even if I'm just going to be in their lives for half an hour or six weeks. Um, I do my utmost to get to know them before I even put the camera on my shoulder. Um, I have a cup of tea with them. Um, if mm. I walk in through their garden, they're growing vegetables. I talk to them about vegetable growing. If they make some comment about something or other to me, I follow it up. And just it's it's just human interaction. It is simple as that. Um, and on my training, when I'm training sort of the next generation behind me to sort of come through and film, I say to them, look, just don't be so busy with all the technical stuff, getting your camera ready, that you forget to talk to the poor soul that, as you said, maybe hasn't ever been filmed before. So it's that. And, and I, 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 in 40 years, um, I have, um, I would say, pretty every time not had an issue with people having the camera often, you know, a couple of um, feet away, you know, a meter or so away. Um, and I think a lot of it goes to that. Obviously, I've had people put their hands up and say no filming. That's security often or whatever. But but if you engage with people on a, a human to human sort of relationship, human to human sort of, um, uh, I'll talk to you, you talk to me, and just have a dialogue, then that's got me through the most amazing situations when people have been in all shades of emotion and it's just helped. And uh, I've got that scene on my camera, you know, when I put it when I've put it up there and started filming. Was it Paddington Green where you were filming um, and you had that violent young kid? Was that that he was lashing out? Was that that? No, that was to come later. That was um, 2005, 2006. That was um, that was a series um, about um, child behavior. And there was a lad, um, a teenage lad that lived with his mother. It was and his younger sister. And it's the three of them. Um, and he basically had uh, various sort of behavioral um, sort of circumstances um, that there was a sort of a, a counselor stroke social worker that was helping treat the lad, but you never, he never met the lad, if that makes sense. He was always doing it by, by phone direction to the mother. The mother obviously was the key uh, person in the middle and the mother was getting all sorts of verbal and sometimes physical abuse from the son. Um, and the counsellor who was based up in London 
he would speak to the mother every night and say, what happened today? How did it go? Uh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And the poor mother went through the most roller coaster of um, sort of um, uh, roller coaster journey because she at one point loved her son dearly and wanted him to be right, but also didn't want to tempt this other behavior, trying to correct it because she knew it would lead to more uh, verbal sort of um, outrages and, and occasionally violent outrages. So it was following her journey, but with her and with them, that was six weeks, six, um, yes, about six weeks filming um and just getting to know them um and often it was just me with the camera in very small confined rooms when almighty bust-ups were going on uh doors could be ripped off hinges um horrible words being said um and often with my camera it was just the three of us in the room um and he was the lab was getting better they were um, the treatment um, worked, and, and now their relationship is, you know, 15 years on, 16 years on, is is fantastic. But is much improved anyway. Um, but then it wasn't great, uh, and you have to draw on all your skills um, of, um, you know, not getting involved. Uh, you have to draw on all your skills of just technically covering um, quite a, um, a, a chaotic scene. And you have to draw on all your skills of empathy, as I was saying earlier, just in terms of being able to ask the right mm. questions and feel compassion for, for indeed both of them. And, of course, remain objective at the same time. I was going to ask you if you ever felt – it's interesting you actually mentioned that, draw on all your skills of, of not getting involved. I wondered if you felt um, – if there was ever a point where you felt that you needed to step in when you've got a job of trying to be – unbiased and documenting this situation and yet there's only the three of you in there and if she's getting assault mm. like is there any, that temptation to sort of step in and go hey absolutely and, and, and i think if it had obviously um resulted in in uh, the mother being um subjected to any severe um sort of um uh, situation then obviously you know um, I would have stepped in. Um, and the director was just outside as well, um, listening through headphones, and I had a sound recorder next door as well. Um, it never came quite to that, although the, the young lad did take a few, uh, at least once, maybe twice, uh, a few runs at me as well in terms of pushing me pushing me down on the floor. Um, the, 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 the ability on everything I, I've done, be it in um, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, in Africa, or, or much closer to home, you know, in, in that two up, two down, semi-detached house in Southampton, is is staying objective, as I say, um, but also at the same time just realizing that if you know something obviously is you know um, not sustainable, then then you know um, having to step in or at least say something. Um, I think I have in the past when some situation has been escalating, possibly put the camera down. Um, I like to think the way I work doesn't help um, combust a situation more than it needs to be. But I think sometimes when uh, everybody just calms down, sits down for two minutes, including putting the camera down, probably doesn't do any harm. But with, with that situation you're talking to me about, about the mother and the son, it, it was almost like we became part of the family. So we would be asked questions, particularly the director. Uh, the mother would ask the director. They got on very well. So you you are not just getting underneath the skin 
of these extraordinary contributors, you are becoming one of them in effect. Um, and as I say, you have to remain impartial and you have to show both sides of the story. Um, and But yeah, these things go deep sometimes. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you, you have to be um, resilient to a number of things that are happening at any one time. So you can just focus on the job. And it is a job after all that we're there to do. I want to take you back to um, after you finished uh, the trip to Iraq, you said your next big trip was Africa. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, there was a civil war going on in Angola. And um, this is 96, 97. And the BBC wanted to do a, a series about the um, anniversary of the United Nations, which from memory was set up in 46, 47, something around there. So we went to Angola as part of this series to film with the United Nations. And, and the Angolan civil war, or civil wars are horrible, but the Angolan one seemed particularly horrible. It was an impoverished country, and yet it was being fought by the superpowers. Um, and they were there as proxies, basically. So you basically had the Americans fighting the Russians through those that were, and the South Africans were involved as well, through those that were on the ground. Um, and it was the most appalling setup because, again, it's all the good people that suffer. Um, and our job was to go in with the United Nations, so I say, and just for a week, uh, maybe a bit longer, 10 days, spend that time with them and just see what they were doing in terms of what we euphemistically call peacekeeping. And they, they were they were struggling with that because the, the war was so intense. Um, but to put it crudely, it ticked the boxes for me. And one reason why I wanted to do it um, because I was going to be going in with the people and the people that lived there. And I had no idea what I was going to come up against. I had no idea what I was going to see. Um, but that did it for me in terms of accepting it because we were going to go in there. And it was me, a recordist, uh, again, a director, and also an assistant producer who helps the director set up the, the, the various um, permissions to film. Um, so it was going to be about people living and working with the the the, the Angolans, which, as I mentioned earlier, I, I love working with people and seeing their side of the story. But just getting there, it all became very um, inauspicious in terms of um, so dangerous is the setup that when they fly you in in a United Nations cargo plane, um, they basically just go in at a very very in a very very steep dive uh, because there's a, a ground to air. Um, missiles that they're very concerned about. So I remember very, very vividly being in this cargo plane, a United Nations plane, uh, painted brilliant white, which I thought sort of, <laughs> sort of, um, uh, if, if you ever want a target in the sky, if you paint it brilliant white, but anyway, United <laughs> Nations are brilliant white. And they put this thing in a deep dive. And I remember clearly it was a cargo plane. There were a few seats, so there's loads of cargo. But as we went into this steep dive, I thought, hang on a minute. I can hear some chickens. And because it was a cargo plane and because we're in a dive, they were carrying in a load of fresh food and there were some crates of chickens going in. And as we went into the steep dive, the chickens just in the gang plant, gangway just slid past me in the deep dive, clucking, oh, no. looking out through the cage. And, and then you actually think this is a life and death situation, yet there's, there's some humour there. Um, mm. and, and we landed... And we landed safely. <laughs> I wouldn't be here otherwise. We landed safely. Um, and that was in Luanda. That was in the capital. But where we were filming was a place called Wambo, Wambo, which is much more in the central highlands. And we drove out there. 
um, to be based with our sort of platoon, United Nations platoon. Um, and it was just bombed to hell. It was absolutely bombed out. Church, church spires had been blown off. Um, bullet, bullet ridden, uh, bullet holes ridden across um, all buildings. No glass. And I remember as we drove into Wambo looking up, and it was like a sort of small tower block. Um, and there were no windows. And there were great hole marks of uh, where, where concrete had been, and there's just a gaping hole. And I remember seeing kids in basically rags standing at one of these, these windows, two or flights up, just staring out. It would have been absolutely ravaged. The worst was to come, though, because where we were staying was, was uh, how had been a United Nations, had been a hotel, rather, and was now the United Nations headquarters. Um, but there'd obviously been some awful battle that had gone on in there and um, it hadn't been cleaned up properly. Let, let, let's just say that. Um, and the reception, there was three graves where some of the fighters had been buried. But our rooms were just appalling. They hadn't been cleaned properly. And I don't mean the bed hadn't been made. I meant some people had been murdered there, basically, and they'd not been cleared up properly. Um, um, to this day, I still go into my... Any hotel I stay in, anywhere in the world, I go into the bathroom first and just have a look. There's something there because I went into this bathroom in Angola, in Wambo first, and, and there was uh, uh, there was not a nice, there were not nice things to see, um, and th that whole situation from there in terms that's where we were based for the next three or four nights, uh, and then we moved on to another place called Quito, but it was basically Wambo. We were filming with the local farmers. And those local farmers um, were collecting firewood. They were trying to live their lives. Um, and with the UN, we were then doing stuff on mine clearance. Um, and it was just before Princess Diana went on her famous trip to Angola uh, with the Halo Trust, which is a big mine clearance, mine clearance um, um, uh, charity. And we, we spent a day filming... Um, with this family and i remember clearly um they wouldn't let us again similar to kuwait walk anywhere near or through the trees or through the farmland because it'd been so heavily mined this barbaric way of stopping people get on their own land particularly the farmers um but i recall we went back to their farm at the end did the filming as well um but the mother asked the the daughter to bring us all out a tray of soft drinks and water um, and maybe even tea. And, and she, she came out with that at the end. Um, and it, it brought us all to tears virtually because, because we weren't filming, but it was that extraordinary politeness when someone mm. and a family and her, she's only about 11, 12 years old, have been through such extraordinary adversity um, and yet could still show that politeness and those manners. And, I should add, she had suffered from a very bad shrapnel wound. Um, her leg, one of her legs had been very badly injured and nobody had done a particularly good job in cleaning it up. And I thought to go through that, to go through that injury and still to, you know, be able to sort of show this extraordinary respect to strangers was, was quite was quite humbling, actually. Yeah. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary, an extraordinary trip. Um, but as I say, we did get to meet those that have been affected by this horrible, gruesome, barbaric civil war. How long were you over there for? We were there for about 10 days. 
Um, and as well as filming with the farmers, um, we did a lot of filming with the, um, I remember he was an Indian captain that ran the platoon um, and he was based in Wambo as well. And we went out on um, a number of days just on sort of um, sorties or, or reckeys or whatever. And he took us one day to this village. He said, I want you to see this. And he took us to this village and it was basically just a stockade of huts and stuff, farming, farming buildings. And he said, they have a pond. It's just a couple of meters, 20 or so meters down the end of that track. And they won't go and get their water from there. And I'm going to prove to them today that they can drive down that fence, that, down that track to get their water. Now, the track, which joined the village to the pond, about 20 metres away, as I say, no distance at all, but had very tall elephant grass, very tall elephant grass growing. And the reason why they went the long, circuitous route is they said this track was mined and they would never walk down it. And I remember them actually shouting outside the Land Rover, don't drive down there, don't drive down there. Um, we were all in the Land Rover. I was in the passenger oh, seat filming the captain as I can still see his face, face today, the resolve on his face. He said, nope, there's no mines here. We're going to do this. Um, and I, I remember looking over my shoulder and there they were saying, no, don't go down there, don't go down there. And we went down there um, and we obviously survived. But it was, again, one of those moments when <laughs> camera was on my shoulder. I, I, I guess I had confidence in him. One assumed he wouldn't have driven us down if he'd known, but... The fact that I can still hear the elephant grass, uh, sort of six, seven foot tall grass beating against as we drove down, beating against the front of the Land Rover. Um, and they, you know, they live there. They, they, they said that don't drive down. It's been mined for a long time. And who was I to know? Um, we like to think the captain did know. So it, 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 it pushed the boundaries, this shoot. It pushed the boundaries um of what i'd ever done before i don't think i've ever done anything quite like it since um and it all culminated one night back in that hotel i mentioned in wambo um when uh we'd had to get water to shave or to drink there was a big united nations water bowser a uh, big water tank outside the um hotel um and i went down one night just to fill up i forgot what it was now my my um, the pot or my pan or my bottle even. And I was underneath the water bows. I was kneeling down with the tap open. And I heard these gunshots out in the street and they were ricocheting around me. And there's nobody else in the street apart from me and whoever was firing this blessed gun. Um, and I looked up and I can still see his face coming up the street was this guy. I, I would say he's late teenage, absolutely crazed out of his face firing i would imagine the kalashnikov um and absolutely out of his head and he was just he was just ricocheting all around <coughs> and i'm thinking right what do i do do i run to the hotel or do i stay here and i was absolutely terrified um and i think in the mm. end from memory i sprinted back to the hotel but i got back into my room um and i say the room was 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 more of a cell where these horrible things had happened and I remember lying on my camp bed because all the beds had been destroyed. We took our own our camping gear and I'd actually, we had mosquito nets. I'd actually tied my mosquito net 
to the lamp fitting above. That's about the only thing they left, a lamp fitting with a bare bulb. And as I got into my bed that night, the camp bed collapsed. And it went pitch black, and I ended up in all the filth. And that just did it for me. I remember picking up the bed and the pitch black, just slamming it against the wall, saying, I can't do this, I can't do this. And fortunately, the, 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 the assistant producer, she was next door, came in um, and consoled. And we all then met up and just talked through it all because it was all getting to the point where it was just, we were seeing things that basically we shouldn't probably not have been seeing. And it was just pushing the human, what the human spirit can actually take um, to the limits. But yeah, it, it all built up to that moment. And that's where the teams come in, where you are, you know, you look after each other, your mates and stuff. Um, and you try and get yourself through that adversity. Adversity, nothing compared to what those that living there uh, were, were having to put up with at the same time, of course. Does the BBC, I know this is a while ago, so OHS has changed now, but does the BBC offer you, or you're freelancing then anyway, but is there any form of counselling that you access after something like that when you get back as a matter of process or because you're freelancing not so much? It's a very good, very good question. I mean, I mean, um, back then, uh, well, actually, just to be clear, it was a freelance company I was working for, which is being sold to the BBC. So that's the first thing to say. Um, okay. Back then, um, nothing was offered. Um, uh, I'm sure it could have been if um, we'd wanted to. If I'm honest, the, the, the intervening 25 years, things have changed, I think. I think now it would Very be part so. of the protocol, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's not to say the company uh, wouldn't have offered us something if we'd asked. I think we probably would. I think when I came back, uh, and this affected me more than the Q8, uh, the Gulf War and Q8 uh, shoot, um, I probably could have done with some counselling. Um, mm. We did see some horrible things. Um, I think now it would probably be more offered um, and you'd probably be forced to. Back then we weren't. That's not to say it wasn't there. But, yeah, it probably didn't do me any good not speaking to someone about it. It's interesting hearing you tell these stories, Jeremy, because although that you've had this career behind the camera and documenting these things through um, a lens, you very vividly tell the story, but it's the smell. You often talk about the smell of the oil burning and the, and the sound of the, the reeds, you know, that grass hitting the, the car and it's the other senses that you sort of bring into the story and it's very vivid. And it's it's interesting to hear it from somebody that's had that career of capturing the image. Very much so. And I, and I think the whole experience of the visual image is an emotional one that does rely on lots of the, lots of the senses. I mean, they've been saying mm. in all the recent lockdowns we've been having um to to do your spirits to build up on your spirits and, and build up your your mood even look out of your window uh see the way the shadows change or go out and walk in a field and smell the smell the grass or hear <coughs> the the wind of the uh, hear the the wind blowing through the leaves in the tree so i suppose my point is that uh my whole 
construction of, of, of the visual image or the visual story is based obviously on, on the, the, the eyes as well, but, but it, all the other senses are involved as well because the whole stimulation of, 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 of the, the, the human mind when we're looking at visual images is, is a whole creation of um, uh, whole creation of different senses being triggered. And, and, and if we can evoke that um, visual image even more by um, sort of almost the way we frame showing a shadow that almost sort of suggests the smell you'd get from the grass that you can see in the sunlight, then, then that, that works even more in terms of getting my, um, my viewers engaged. But, yeah, no, no it is. It's, it's, a, it's a hugely instinctive job. And even when I'm up against it in, you know, in that shoot in, in, in the, the two up, two down in Southampton or in Angola or more recent stuff, um, it is how I feel. And, 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 you know, I used to do Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares and, and, and that can often be you walk into a kitchen, there's a wonderful smell the first morning from the baking of bread or something. And that in turn can help trigger the way you might cover a scene. So, yeah, no, I'm open. It's kind of you to mention it, but I, I, I'm open to all those senses. I think they do heavily influence what I then do when the camera's on my shoulder, just as you would. You know, if you go into a, a abattoir or something like that, you know, on a farm near a farm, you know, that must surely have some effect in terms of what you see and what you smell and what you touch. Yeah. Angola was your last um, coverage of, of that type of filming, was it, wasn't it? You went on to do lighter, I suppose, lighter things such as kitchen nightmares and and so forth after that Is yeah that, no absolutely no, am I correct but, in saying that yeah I, I mean I've done I've done uh, the civil war in Angola and and I've done the um the, the shoot in in the Gulf I've not done any war or stuff since um and yeah you're right I mean I, mm-hmm. I've, I've done a few kitchen nightmares with Gordon Ramsay um and also I've been very lucky to go around the world with Kevin McLeod um a series called Escape to the World where we were living with expats um but there again, you see, that's the adversity that I like covering on my camera. Um, you don't need mm. to be in a war zone for people to be up against it. Um, yeah. And the whole premise was these were expats living great locations. They sound uh, Chile, Belize, Tonga, places like that, Sweden. Um, but they were up against it for many, many different reasons. And again, there it's an opportunity to point my camera um, someone who basically, you know, I, I, I mentioned adversity. It, it doesn't need to be um, overt adversity like that poor girl in Angola. Yeah. Um, it can be these guys in Tonga. Do you think, wow, Pacific Island, they must be having an amazing time. Well, they were to a certain extent. The kids couldn't go to school. Not uh, Well, not there anyway. They had to go, you know, um, 2,000 miles away in New Zealand. There were big cyclones a lot of the time. And they were, you know, frankly, a long way from, from anywhere. Um, so it's that indomitable human spirit I enjoy pointing my camera at. And it can be a lot closer to home um and as i say doesn't necessarily need the 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 the, the danger that you know some of my previous shoots have involved me getting into you mentioned um kitchen nightmares i have a theory that gordon ramsay's actually quite a nice guy is that correct 
He's absolutely charming. Yeah, we get on incredibly <laughs> yeah. well. Um, it's a few years now. Yeah, he, he's um, incredibly intelligent. Um, he knows his stuff, obviously. Um, mm. And he, again, is a master at just picking out um, the the unusual. Um, I'm, I mean, I haven't done huge amounts with him. I did a film with him in Nottingham, <coughs> just north of London, uh, about a curry house. And I've done something in Paris with him as well. But he'll pick up the unusual or the unexpected. Um, he'll pick out the, um, the the lad that cleans the pots as someone he can maybe nurture and give an opportunity to do some cooking. Um, he'll 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 pick out, as I say, the unexpected, the the the, the minutiae that you wouldn't necessarily expect um, him to see with his busy life coming in, doing it, and then going off again. But he's very observant. No, he's great, great, and great entertainment as well, of course. With you freelancing, I suppose working with a big organisation such as the BBC, they say this is your assignment. I'm assuming that you have an option of um, saying yes or no to it, hopefully. Um, but when you're freelancing, how do are you attached to a an agency? How do people? You've got a great reputation out there in the in the industry, but how do people book you for for jobs? Are they coming to you directly? Uh, originally, there would have been an agency that that people would have approached. Now, with social media and smartphones, um, you're just contacted direct, um, and that sort of middleman, middlewoman uh, has gone in terms of a diary agency. Um, and now they just come direct. So they come to me through my website, or they come to me because of my training company, Skills to Film, or they come to me. Mm-hmm. They just phone me up. Um, but a lot of the people that use me are people I've known for a number of years. And I think that's an important thing to, to flag up as well, that, that a lot of this, um, I mean, I touched on this earlier a little bit, but a lot of this um, uh, filmmaking we do is very much collective. Uh, it is a collective mm. experience. I mean, on that Southampton film, the director and I would sit down in the hotel every night, absolutely exhausted, but we'd have a pint in front of us and we'd just talk through what had happened and, and you know, almost give each other counselling. Um, so these are friends, um, and I'm 59 now. So a lot of my friends that I've grown up with and doing with, um, are retiring or have gone off and do other stuff. And it is a physical job as well. So, you know, there's less of them, but they're still there. And you need that sort of person there in the extreme to watch your back, just to make sure, you know, to, to look after you as, as that, uh, fantastic lady Sue Jones did in, in Angola. Um, but the other extent, just somebody to talk to uh, and and to have a to get on with, because you know it, it is as I said, it's a collective business, it's a collaborative business, um, and so the people that do book me are often people I've known for a while, and with our history, that can often go back through many many experiences. You've talked a lot about um, capturing people's stories and the essence of the person on the cam on camera and through the camera. You've seen and experienced a lot of different people at some of their most vulnerable stages, I would I would imagine, when you're not doing the lighthearted, you know, kitchen stuff and and so forth. What has it taught you? Like what lessons have you learned from seeing different people in such different environments and such different cultures and countries? Yeah, it's a good question. 
Uh, it's taught me to be very open-minded. It's taught me to be very tolerant. It's taught me that a lot of people have these most amazing stories and experience that if we didn't have uh, the opportunity to turn up there with my team, uh, would never have that option for their stories to be heard or seen. They just pass by. So it's taught me to that I'm very lucky and, and uh, you know, to a certain amount, uh, to a certain extent, I'm very privileged. Um, but do you know what? I think underlying all of it, it's taught me that day in, day out, I think I've been incredibly lucky and there's very little now, to be honest, um, that can happen that, that I won't, either seen or experienced in some way. So I, I, I feel I can, I can take lots of things in terms of just, you know, things I hear or things I see or things I experience. Um, but do you know what? I think overall it just makes me feel like I'm much more of an all, all-rounded person to have had this exposure, to have had these windows onto these amazing experiences. A lot of people will be quite happy in their lives. They just experience one. Yeah, I've had all of them. So I guess I put all those experiences down to um, just adding a richness to the way I live and a and a and a and a, a, how, how, a contentedness almost that you know if I didn't do any other trips, I didn't do any other shoots, I've still experienced more than most. And at the same time, if it gives me the opportunity to um give that underdog and i've always had something about the underdog always wanted to give the underdog a, a, a platform um to, to just give them that opportunity if i've done in some small way the opportunity just to give that uh person that's had less than me in life uh, a little bit more of a um as i say a, a, an exposure or an awareness a lot of these films i've done something has happened as a result. Questions have been asked by politicians. Articles have been written. Laws have potentially even been discussed to be made. Then, you know, that means I've achieved something as well. Um, and also, I'm, I, I like to think, uh, I've learned a lot about empathy, compassion, um, and just giving a little bit back to people that have had a, a bad time. Um, that you know, you know, maybe I can help a little bit on their their, their way as well now. You're teaching now at um, you've got your own company, Skills to Film, um, as well as teaching the technical side of uh, filmmaking and cinemat- cinematography. Um, what's the most important? I mean, you've you've touched on telling the story and allowing, you know, using all the senses to tell the story. But what do you think is the most important thing that a filmmaker can sort of learn through through that journey of your course? No, absolutely. I mean, I often mention a, a hero of mine when I'm running my training at Skills to Film called Henri Cartier-Bresson. He was a Frenchman. 20s, 1920s, 1930s. He ran around getting the most extraordinary photographs but he had a camera that was only, you know, four, three or four inches in dimension. So, you know, the first thing is just to get over with those that come on my training, that the camera is important, but it is basically just a, a, an extension, a mere extension of your arm. 
it, it, it records what you see in your eyes and it records how you feel in your gut. Um, and cameras have come on a lot since those uh, Cartier-Bresson times and they are now mini computers. They do the most extraordinary things. They allow us to film in incredibly low light. They can, they can do automatic focus. They can um, give them the, an extraordinary richness of colors. I mean, you can't quite smell the picture like I could with my film, but, but it's getting close. Um, no, they're, they're extraordinary things, but um, they are useless, frankly, um, without those that are operating the camera um, having an empathy, um, having an instinct, and if I'm honest with you, having an experience of life. Um, these are the attributes that help you be a visual storyteller. The, the, the keeping the camera uh, working and pressing the right button can come later. So that's the side I look at on, and I often talk um, to, to those that come on my training about the human face, learning, watching, experiencing how the human face can show so many different emotions and how that in effect can help uh, decide um, what you film and how you film it. I mean, I'm, I'm deviating slightly here, but but I, I did a film with Harry Patch. Harry Patch was the last British survivor of the First World War. Um, and we took him back to uh, Belgium in, in his final years. Um, and he was well into wow. his hundreds then. Um, but but I relate this story to, to, to my delegates on my training course. And I say, um, the camera obviously was important, capturing the images, but it was me having those 10 minutes alone. There's a big production team that Harry had said he would only go to a place where his uh, colleagues had died 80 years before, which is me, the cameraman, and him. He wanted to be alone. And those 10 minutes, um, I shall never forget because, and I relay this, I say, uh, yeah, it's the face. He was saying something, and I'll never know what he was saying. He was muttering. It might have been his pal's names. I don't know. But it was his hands. It was his body language. It was the way he was um, hunched. All those things you've got to pick up um, as a visual storyteller before you press the record button. So it's that instinct for life. I mentioned at the beginning, don't just film what you see, but film how you feel. Um, what do you feel in your gut? Does that shot feel right to cover now? That person's over there by the window crying. Where should you be? Should you be close to them, talking to them, filming them? Yes, you should. Not, you know, back on the other side of the room. So it's that 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 human instinct that I, I train. And people can start with that you know, as soon as they like. They don't need to have a camera with them because it's often based on, um, you know, human interaction. Um and years ago, I trained at the Bear Grylls team to go and film on the island, which you've 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 you have out there, I know. Um, and the people that were doing their own filming had never filmed anything in their lives; they were just members of the public. The majority were just members of the public. Um, and so, teaching them how to do their own filming, I just would say to them, "Think of being down the pub in the bar on a Friday night. Two people walk in." They're mates of yours. They sit down opposite. What do you do? And they say, well, I sit there and I listen. I say, brilliant. And do you ask a question? Well, sometimes I let them speak. Brilliant. And then if somebody over there starts getting a bit upset, the person they walked in with, do you give them attention? And they say, yeah, of course. And I say, brilliant. When you've got the camera on your shoulder, that's exactly what I want. I want those two people walking in. I want to get a little bit of person talking. You can ask some questions. And if that person's crying, I want to see them as well. They say, all oh, right, I get it. So the whole filmmaking process does revolve to a certain extent around how we act as human beings.
Have you found that people more from the social media now gravitating towards your courses? Uh, yeah, we do. We have a big following on Facebook, um, which brings a lot of people in. Um, we're obviously always looking for, for different ways of, of attracting um, uh, interest. Um, but we're also now finding a lot of work coming in from corporate business. So these are companies, even before lockdown, who are interested in actually creating their own visual content. Um, so that's obviously often starting with smartphones, uh, people working in the office, you know, that whole idea of how to create content that they can sell their business for. But yeah, there, there is a big drive through social media. Um, we also do a lot of work um, in terms of working with various organizations in London uh, who promote us as well. Um, and the best way is the oldest way, and that's word of mouth. That, that, that goes back, um, uh, you know, obviously... <laughs> thousands of years in terms of communication, just people telling other people about the work that we do. Where I was going with the social media question was more um, YouTubers starting to mm. to come across rather than the traditional. I mean, you've touched on the corporate, mm. but I would imagine that mm. there's sort of all the YouTuber wave and everything is coming over. Hugely, yeah. I mean, there's obviously um, a massive YouTube presence. We have our own YouTube channel. Um, and there are um, those working their way up through um, who may well never um, do any work for, for, for broadcast TV. Um, it's quite possible um, because such as YouTube and such as the social media um, sort of a, a exposure of it that, that you, you can do extremely well. Um, we do get those that, that have got no connection with the broadcast industry coming on our training. Uh, I have had some YouTube sort of connections as well, uh, YouTube contacts as well. Um, and they're interesting as well because they're, they're often, obviously, a, a lot younger than I am, but they have none of the boundaries that may be to a certain extent, broadcast can bring. Uh, there's a criteria in terms of what cameras you can use. There's a criteria in terms of often the way you should um, uh, um, uh, technically produce these things. But all that can go out the window. So you can use any camera you want. You can use a quirky sort of uh, way of cutting things together. Um, and music videos. I've had music videos, uh, music video producers coming to me as well. Um, which is great for me because I can then explore a different area, uh, as I say, where the editing process might be, you know, all snazzy and quick jumps and quick cuts that we wouldn't necessarily do in the broadcast. So that helps me uh, evolve the sort of training I'm doing and appeal to all. But the other thing I wanted to say as well is, is both in the YouTube generation and also in the broadcast generation, the predominance of those I'm training are women. So they're mid-20s. They're coming into the business, the broadcast business in particular, um, often as a sort of what we call a researcher level or a development uh, researcher level, just finding stories, that sort of stuff. But the way that they work in terms of the broadcasting production companies here, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia and elsewhere, is once they've got them in there, they like them to give them the opportunity to keep them and train them up. So I see on my courses predominance of young women who are learning how to use the camera, as we've been discussing today, to tell stories, to tell visual stories, but they just get it. Um, they, they learn the technical quickly, 
but they've got again going back to that empathy and that instinct and, and even that experience of life they do just seem to have it and, and be able to sort of articulate it when they are in a situation they're out covering a scene or, or or filming a story and that that's across the board that's just not in broadcast i see the same with um the the, the youtube uh, and the music videos as well how do people find your course what's your website is it skills to film.com yeah it's skills to film.com um and because of lockdown at the moment um we're going through um all these sort of um um people staying at home sort of um situation scenarios uh we've got mm. an offshoot called your skills to film just one word your skills to film and that's the online version but anybody that taps in skills to film will find us and the facebook page skills to film is very much there as well um and that has a big following but but i say to anybody that's listening and, and just interested i mean you don't need the most expensive bit of kit you know iphones now do a fantastic job um, what I would recommend to anybody interested in getting into the business is, is if you want to tell that visual story, just take pictures, even start with photos, but, but of things that you enjoy, that when you look at them, it does something to you. I mean, I'm a great one for going into galleries and just looking at paintings. Um, and you can absorb so much just in terms of, the way something's been lit or the colors that's been painted in or the composition that the artist has applied just by looking at that or look at photographs in, in books. Um, the actual process then on, on the technical side in terms of the, the, the video content creation, so getting in focus, getting your exposure sorted out, getting your sequence of shots so that can edit can come after that. Um, you, you can't have the... You can't have the first, um, you know, the, 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 you can't have the, um, uh, the, the, the technical knowledge without knowing how to tell the story. And that story, as I say, does belong with what you see in your eyes, what you hear in your ears and, and what you feel in your gut. And that's where you should begin. Um, and you, to record all that when you, when you see something, smartphone, absolutely fine. Jeremy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Good. Well, I hope that's been of interest. And again, it's wonderful to talk to you all. Um, you know, it's amazing what we can do with technology. And thank you very much for giving me giving me giving me the opportunity. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 